Welcome to Gatekeeper, a podcast about booking from the bookers and gatekeepers who decide who's in and who's out. Also, there's other stuff. And now your host of Gatekeeper, Jamie Flam. Welcome to Gatekeeper New York Edition, as you probably just heard in that amazing soundscape put together by producer Andrew. Thank you, Andrew, for making that dream of mine come true to really bring you into the world of New York. Those were all sounds that I actually got, real live sounds recorded on my recorder. That's right, I brought my recorder to New York City where I spent about 10 days. I was out there producing a live comedy and music show and just recording a bunch of podcasts for you to get a New York perspective, a a New York state of mind. Yes, yes, straight out of the dungeons of podcasting. It was a very inspiring trip. I met with so many exciting and inspiring people. It's hard not just to feel the energy of that city. It's much different than LA. If you're a fan of comedy, you know that the differences between these two metropolitans is quite remarkable. So over the next few weeks, you're going to be hearing some great interviews with people that I had the chance to sit down with and they're going to be out of order because I was all over the city on any given day and I got to recommend that if you can get to New York it it can be life-changing just to give you a brief example of a typical day in New York so the first episode of this New York edition of the show is a conversation with Paul Mercurio Uh, it was recorded in Central Park and it was the second of five things I did in one day. That's right, I woke up at 10 a.m. I was in Ridgewood, Queens for another episode recording. Then just took the train, I think it was the F train or the G train or that one train, it was one of those trains, to Central Park to meet with Paul. From there, I went to the Guggenheim Museum because I'm very into art and met Chris Garcia, a fantastic comic who happened to be in town. We looked at some paintings, then I shot down to the Lower East Side, or is it up? I don't remember, for a meeting with a very important member of the industry. From there, I was in the Financial District, where I met with another person for a podcast, and then to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where I had dinner at a very, very hip spot. So, point being, I'm very cool, and New York kept me very busy. Versus today, my first day back in LA, I woke up 8.30 a.m., pretty good for me. Um, I was napping by 10, and now I'm at Andrews and have done one thing, and I feel pooped. I don't know what it is about that city of New York, but it's magical, and well, my goal was to try to bottle up as much of that energy, and now and disperse it to you in the form of this podcast. So keep listening. And now we're going to shoot to me as I make my way to Central Park to talk with Paul. Testing. Testing. Testing one, two, three. This is Jamie Flam. 
Welcome to Gatekeeper. This episode starts with me walking furiously down East 90th Street on the Upper East Side towards Central Park, which is apparently a, a tourist attraction here in New York City. Very big, lots of things to do. I'm meeting Paul Mercurio, who is a great comedian and producer and writer who works for The Colbert Show, also known as The Late Show now. Um, where I got to see him do some audience warm-up last week on a great show. And because I'm running so late, I thought it'd be a fun experiment to just press record and awkwardly walk down the street you know, uh, with no breath whatsoever, holding two microphones and uh, my Zoom recorder as I pass by the New York International School. Wow, that means that... People from different countries can be there. That's what international means. And there's an Episcopal church right here. And then a big building to my right. There's a lot of big buildings, as it turns out, here in New York. It's a beautiful day. There are some clouds. Hopefully, they won't rain on this podcast. Anyway, I'm excited to talk to Paul. I have uh, had a couple conversations. He was on the Long Shot podcast, another podcast that I've been doing for a long time. And I was a guest on his podcast when he was in LA, whoa, it's a big sound. There's some construction men. I don't think they're gonna be hooting and hollering at me, but they're certainly gonna be looking at me with some questions about this weird man. Ooh, man with a cinder block just walked past me on two microphones. I'm on one microphone right now, but the other one's hanging out of my hand. I'm looking for Paul because I can see the entrance to Central Park in front of me. We'll see how open he is to just taking a mic and rolling with this. Oh, my eyes hurt. Well, peek behind the curtains. Sometimes my eyes hurt as I search furiously for, I think I see him next to a hot dog cart. Pure New York City at its finest. Hot sausages, chili cheese dogs, they got everything. Paul, 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 Paul. In the interest of time, the podcast has already started recording. <laughs> hey, everybody. How are you? Oh, nice I'm good. to see you, man. I'm in your city. My eyes hurt. Oh, yeah? I'm giving um, you a little welcoming hug. A big welcoming hug. How are you, Paul? Good, man. How are Is you? It, are you down to roll with this? Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to walk? Here? Do you want to stand? Yeah, let's walk in. Go in the, you want to go in the park? Yeah, let's go in the Central go Park. In the park. How, uh, how's your trip into New York? This it's been awesome. good. I apologize for being late. Oh, that's okay. It's part of this podcast. I'm showing the behind the curtain, and now people know that I apologize when I'm late. <laughs> and we, uh, we're going to like find a little bench somewhere, and uh, we can chit-chat. Here, why don't, we go, why don't we walk down this way, actually? Come with me. How's the trip been so far? It's been amazing. I love New York. Yeah. You were saying on the phone. Yeah, it's been the best. I though I haven't figured out the timetables yet. Like To me, like getting from uh, Ridgewood, uh, Queens to here seemed like a 30 minute thing but apparently it's an hour thing <laughs> yeah well i don't you shouldn't feel bad because i think even if you live here you never really figure out the whole time thing because they're constantly doing work on the ch- subway tracks or cleaning or there's a, some I don't know, a rat just dis, you know discombobulated the entire system or whatever so <laughs> uh and you just came out to hang for a bit yeah i've been here for about nine days I did put on a show in Brooklyn when I first got here, and 
The yeah. rest has been podcasting. Uh, you got me into the Colbert show. Yeah. And went to the Tonight Show and just been bopping around. Nice. How was your show in Brooklyn? Where did you do it? It was at a place called the Jalopy, which is actually a music music school and uh, uh, theater. Nice. And uh, it was the first comedy show they've ever done there, yeah. apparently. And it was it was great. Yeah. It was a variety, great music. Yeah. Good. Good comedy. Oh, you had music too. You did music. Yeah, it was it was a folk music and a stand-up show. Did you perform with your uh, your group? No, just me. Yeah. Just me being awkward on stage. <laughs> what I do. Uh, so you had, uh, how was Roger Waters at the uh, Late Show? I didn't get to stay to see him. Phenomenal. It, it was, what a treat to be able to get to see a legend. Yeah. Yeah, everybody was, uh, you know, kind of people who work on a TV show can be a little bit jaded at times. And uh, everybody was kind of buzzing about, you know, it's Roger. And apparently his, his live show. Excuse me, is amazing. He's doing a lot, a lot of Pink Floyd stuff and new stuff, and uh, so everybody was kind of buzzing back there. And I was bummed I had to bolt. So I'm glad you made it in, though. That and uh, I think that was a pretty good show. You had some good guests on that and stuff. Yeah, like. I think with Bill Nye. Yeah. Uh, How great is the theater? Beautiful, huh? I must say, and I, I was at the Tonight Show the night before. Yeah. And having never been to a taping of either, just uh, the sheer uh, how much bigger. Yeah. Um, as far as the audience size, and I mean, it's beautiful. And it was, is it an old church? It was, no, it was built as a vaudeville house that eventually became a theater, uh, uh, you know, like a Broadway theater. It's right at the corner of 53rd and Broadway. And uh, there are pictures online for people listening. If you go and Google Late Show with Colbert or Ed Sullivan Theater, there's this beautiful dome, yeah. which was covered up by the Letterman folks when they moved in because remember Letterman got in a f- pissed at NBC for not giving him the Tonight Show and basically like and so everybody was courting him including CBS and basically CBS is like we'll give you whatever you want we'll, you know just and they found we'll get you your own th- theater and they found him this theater the theater was in complete disrepair like it was shut down it was on the verge of being condemned but it was built in 1922 and Jackie Gleason did his first shows out of there Ed Sullivan, obviously, the Beatles played on that stage, Elvis. But when the Letterman people moved in, they had to do so much work to get the theater just functional. They said, we can't deal with this dome. Plus, it was 93, and the technology for sound wasn't as good. There's a lot of sound bouncing around in there. So they covered it up with a drop ceiling. And then when Colbert went in, you know, they started doing the work on it, and they tore this thing, and they're like, holy shit. And it's this giant dome. It's beautiful. It's so, and that's why I, I thought might be have been a church and also i think the the imagery which i don't know if that changes every day but um there was a very uh religious uh, tone to it yeah they basically um they put sound panels that they can all that are cream color so they they kind of fade into the wall you don't notice them unless you're up close and you can digitally map things which is what that is yeah so they can change that to look like a night sky or leaves on a tree or any images they want and the same thing you notice on the side walls there are sound panels and images projected up there and the sound issues are less now because I think the technology's gotten a lot better over the years but they literally pulled this thing down and it's got stained glass some of the stained glass was taken out and stored like in the basement and there's a light 
The light's probably the size of like, I'm not even trying to be funny, like a smart car or like a Mini Cooper, like mm -hmm. this massive light in the center, which you, um, you were sitting right below. And um, you walk out and it's 500 people and it was a Broadway house. And, they, and Ringling Brothers used to go through there. Ugh, the history is insane. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about it until you just mentioned it. And I knew it was called the Ed Sullivan Theater. Um, about the fucking Beatles. Yeah. That they performed on that stage. The Beatles, Elvis. I mean, God knows probably everybody. Yeah, but yeah, of course it's the like crazy. And um, the spot exactly, I think, where Elvis and the Beatles played is, um, if you're looking at the stage, to the left is um, Stephen's desk and the chairs, and to the right is the band, so it'd be right around, like, near Stephen's desk. And um, it just was, it's, it, in fact, the Ringling Brothers, they had to put, next time you come, I... Hopefully we can get it so I can bring you. I wanted to try to bring you in ahead of time and show you that, like to give you a little tour. But there is a, um, there are offices and, and green rooms underneath in the basement level, essentially under the stage. And they had to put these big like six by six or four by four timbers under the stage because Ringling Brothers would bring their elephants on the stage. Oh my God. So they, to support the stage, they reinforced and the, and the timbers are still there with a big elephant painted on the wall downstairs. It's pretty crazy, like the history in that place. Um, and that's got to be humbling to go to work there every day. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's sort of like, uh, you know, I was at the Daily Show, and Daily Show's obviously the Daily Show, but just in terms of the space and everything else, it's sort of like going from like a AAA ball field to like Yankee Stadium. It's, uh, yeah, I can't say enough. If you get to New York, it's, it's I think, a must see. And it, I thought the sound was phenomenal. Yeah. And and by the way, I had no idea that you did warm up. Yeah, occasionally so, I'm, I'll do that too. I kind of wear a bunch of different hats. Yeah. But so that was like a, a nice treat when I showed up and um, <laughs> I saw you take the stage. To, yeah. And um, I mean, you're you're a pro, <laughs> and it was just so much fun because it was as entertaining as the show as uh, oh, wow. That's you thing, interacting man. with the audience, which you know you can't take warm up for granted. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's you can't really do stand up in a warm up situation. It just doesn't work. There's, the focus isn't there. You know, you produce shows like there's a reason it's in the dark and there's a spotlight and it's really every word has to be focused on by the listener, especially to get setups for the punchline. So when you've got you walk in just like you, you walk in for the first time and you're like, oh my god, and you're looking around and if the guy's not engaging you in a certain way. He's just sort of reciting material. It's just not the same. Like so, just ad libbing, talking to the audience, and kind of getting to know them and letting them have fun. And it just is a quick way because you kind of have to have to explain to them what we need them to do. Because like I have to tell them, don't watch this like you're at home because they. I think you know they don't know and they shouldn't know. Like they have to be heard by people at home. Mm -hmm. And so there's a tendency to go, oh, I'm in a comfortable chair, and this is just like TV, only they're right here. And so you have to give them some information and get them excited and then get them laughing. And it's sort of a, it's not a defined amount of time because the show gets rehearsed around four-ish, 3.30 or four. It's the same thing that we did at The Daily Show. And then the show goes into rewrite. And while the rewrite is happening, the floors are being buffed the audience is being loaded. My warm-up starts, 
or the warm-up starts depending on you know the day and whatever and who's doing it and then the 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 band and then steven q a and then steven the show so if that rewrite's taking a long time i could be out there for a while so i i'm waiting for a cue mm-hmm. so it's it's been fun you know just to kind of be able to riff and it i think it connects with people and people are so excited anyway i mean most of them are I mean, half of them, maybe not most, but half are like out-of-towners and stuff, tourists, you know? Yeah, who don't necessarily know exactly why they're there, other than it's a TV taping. But, I mean, Colbert especially. I mean, people are chanting his name before it even starts. Yeah, you know, it's funny. Like, um, it just sort of, like, that was was part of the character on Colbert Report, and it fit. Like, the whole idea of his character there was this bombastic, bloviator, you know, Fox News, uh, O'Reilly type. So, in a way, the audience, when it would chant, it just happened organically. Uh, when they would chant Steven, 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 it was like they were a character in the show in a way, and it mm-hmm. made sense because a guy like that wants, you know, that bloviator type wants that kind of adulation. And then it carried over to the late show. And initially, Steven was like, uh, let's not have them do it because I think he wanted to separate a little bit from the. Colbert Report, but then it was just like they just can't help themselves, you know. <laughs> They're like so, and yeah, your ego's got to be like, I don't mind people shouting my name. <laughs> well, it's so funny you should say that because when the fo- show first started, you know, Stephen would come out. You know, he comes out, especially he doesn't do it so much on camera anymore. But when he first came out, if you go back, and look, he would come out and he'd be like high kicking and dancing, and literally, you know, I walk into a club that night, do a set. Tell Steven I don't like him when he comes out. I don't like it when he comes out and dances during the monologue at the beginning of the show. Like eight out of ten people, that was the comment. And then I finally said to somebody, let me let me pose a scenario to you. A major late night franchise changes over once every twenty-five years on one of the three major networks in the world. Someone comes up to you and says, Here, we're gonna give it to you. You have a live band, you're in a historic theater on an historic stage in front of three million people would you fucking dance a little bit i would hell yeah you and know? that band by the way um phenomenal and i mean the energy in that room I, they did you know a, a song that highlighted every member of the band yeah and it's just the energy in that room is it's, it's so palpable yeah I we're trying dancing. to do a show within a show is what kind of the way i term it anyway like and the feeling is like What's happening off camera for the people there should be hopefully, at least, almost, hopefully almost as good as, you know, or close to as good as we can to what the actual show is, you know. And the band, he's John Batista's third generation New Orleans jazz family. He's went to Juilliard. And the way he got the gig was he was on the Colbert Report once, and he, I don't know if you saw his performance, but he performed and then. He sat down with Stephen for a little interview, and Stephen had cards, and and John's a big, you know, jazz impro- improvisation's a big deal. And I guess you know John razzed Stephen a little bit. He goes, what do, you, "What do you need cards for, man? You know how to improvise, right?" And they started <laughs> improvising. They hit it off, and then the show ended with John and his band taking the entire audience out of the studio and marching them down the street, which is a big like that's what they do in New Orleans. You know, they sure. turn it's like a street party. And that stood out in Stephen's mind, so that was like a big, big thing. And it's just to watch those guys will interchange in the band. Like the guy that plays bass can play drums just as mm. well. Stephen, uh, uh, John plays drums. The drummer, uh, like guitarist, can, can play guitar. It, 
the female guitar player is just a petite little quiet thing and then she gets on the guitar and it's like oh she just, was uh just shreds it she was shredded and, and i don't know if you remember but her her aunt was there her aunt oh uh, yeah 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 in the audience that night. on stage yeah which i think I, I mean i was certainly but the rest of the audience too knowing her, her family was there i think we all paid extra attention to her yeah um but i love the idea of the show within the show like you know as a show producer i was like this is it did work as it didn't have to be on tv um for having the band do that at the top, um, I, I don't know if that's novel in late night uh, taping, but it felt like a a beginning, middle, and end. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, you know, the, it just it just kind of happened organically in a way, but also it was planned out, sort of fifty fifty mix. And like, you know, the the whole thing with the audience is uh, engage them. But don't don't be hokey. I think I've been to some shows where the warrants can be kind of it's like kind of hokey because they kind of they don't want to offend anybody. Right. Keep it generic. And my feeling is that just talk to people in a real way, whether they're from Iowa or Brooklyn, it doesn't matter. And don't don't kiss ass and don't worry about offending anybody. And every once in a while you might, but at least <laughs> it's a real a real conversation. And so pretty much whatever person I might do in a club, I'll do there. Like, you know, sure, I mean, I don't really work blue anyway, but short of being super blue, like, but I think the trap that people can fall into is, oh, this is TV now. We have to act a certain way. And it's like, nah, just be real. No, you know? the, the, the authenticity again. And the night before, I sat with Seth Herzog on this night show. Oh, yeah. And both of you guys, I was like, and I think I, I mentioned on, on the podcast with him too, um, Having just watched the Pete Holmes um, show, I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, crashing, yeah. but he gets fired um, from doing warm up on Rachel Ray. Yeah. And so there is an assumption of like they got to, you know, especially if there's you know tourists in the audience, you got to you got to play right. super straight. But neither of you <laughs> were even close to that. Yeah. Well, I and I think they kind of like it, you know, because it's like you're not pandering to them. You're not pandering yeah. to them and. And I find generally, just in clubs in general, like older people are actually easier with that regard to sort of pushing the envelope because they've seen it all. And done, but, you know, they're 70. They, they don't get it. They don't, you know, life's too short. They're mm-hmm. like, ah, please, I've heard worse. I've seen worse, you know. And it's not offensive. It's just real, you know. It's like I don't want to have a conversation with somebody and just sort of have like three stock lines where I like ask them some question that gets me into some stock line. I'll just delve into whatever the person's about and usually it ends up going somewhere and you know um but yeah it's uh it's a pretty cool experience for people like and i sometimes you can get jaded working on the show like 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 half the time if you ask me who's on the show that night i probably can't tell you because i'm so wrapped up in the day and everything Mm -hmm. and so um you do have to like step back from it when i see it through other people's eyes like like see how uh, blown away they can be by the whole like experience of like oh yeah this is kind of a special it's not like just going to any job you know no I mean the same thing and obviously on a much smaller scale but being at the improv for year after year yeah and then I'd have a friend come in that hasn't been there before and you know taking them through all the rooms and like this is the coolest thing ever yeah. and I'm like yeah I guess alright <laughs> yeah <laughs> but and yeah then, you forget and then, and then a you know big name comic passes you by whoever whatever it's like hey David Spade Hey, what's going on, uh, Jamie Flamin? Walking by, like you make, and yet the person's probably like, "Oh my God," and you're like, "Yeah, that's David Spade." Well, know? being here in New York, I'm staying with um, an old friend of mine who loves comedy, and he just 
he has so many questions and he's like, well, it usually comes down to like, how much money are people making? <laughs> um, you know, and I think it's fascinating to people yeah. that, you know, especially in New York and LA, when comics are doing three, four sets a night, it's not money. It's working out. And, yeah. You know, it's, it, if you're headlining, it's a lot different, but you know, if you're just doing spots around town, like you're not making a killing. No, I mean, it, during the week in the city here, it's, 25 maybe 30 i think the seller just upped their price a little bit and then on the weekend it's depending on the club anywhere from 85 to 125 a spot so for me to make in the city what i would make headlining three days on the road i have to do like i don't know 200 spots or right. something right so the idea of this is uh for me it's like going to the gym and working out new stuff and on the weekends you kind of got to you kind of got to make sure you kill, especially right. at the cellar on the weekends. But like, for the most part, it's like there's no use in me going to those clubs for thirty. I mean, I I end up breaking even or losing money because if I got to take a cab across town or downtown, I just I just spent my thirty dollars right. a day. So I got to make sure that I make myself. It's not even making myself. I wanted to, you know, make sure I'm working some new material, getting comfortable with bits that you can then grow and build into like killer bits hopefully you know when you go out on the road so the clubs have a pretty good gig i mean i think the premise of that was when they when there was the big comedy boom in the 70s and early 80s like hey we don't have to pay people a lot because your pay is exposure to the industry which was true at the time everybody was hanging out but nobody no industry really goes well i mean you run a major industry room but on occasion they do but it's rare i mean they just you send them links and stuff now. right right so but they made they, they kept the economic model intact it was like yeah but there's no guy from nbc in this room really right, right. maybe once a year if my manager arranges it but you know it, it works it works out though and um and it's good to just play different rooms every room's they're both fairly similar now in terms of the audiences i think you know it's a mix of new yorkers and Tourists, tourists yep. like around the city and stuff like that. But, yeah. So, I mean, we have, of course have to discuss your path. And I know you've talked about it ad nauseum, but um, you oh, yeah. were not original, originally a comedian. No. I was, you no. came from a law background. <laughs> yes. So give, me, give us the quick Paul story. Um, and and get, was, get us all the way to the Daily Show and where you're, where oh, you're now. Yeah, I was... Uh, I was... Uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird to even say. I, I was... Uh, on Wall Street, I was here in New York, and I was doing uh, corporate law, like mergers and acquisitions. And uh, I, I made some short films, and one of them got into the Aspen Comedy Festival. I went to that. I lied at work, said that I was, I had to go home to deal with something with my mother. I was like, more and more, I was coming up with these lies and excuses that if anybody checked, would be like, uh, I would be totally busted. And then I, uh, and then I went to this festival, and I saw my film on the screen and I was like holy shit and so then they took us to a luncheon with these young filmmakers like myself to meet established filmmakers and it was and we go into this clearing in this massive mansion and I walk in and this guy's got a brook running through his house I don't know if you ever had those moments where you realize like there's a world of money that you'll never understand or know but that was that moment every day <laughs> it's like so I'm like this guy, it, it wasn't a man-made brook. He like basically said, I'm just going to build this over this earth 
part of the earth and that's what we do and like little fish are running through and then there's pictures of this guy with Barbara Streisand and Paul Newman and Robert Redford and George Clooney and it was Peter Goober of Peters and Goober like major 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 film producer who did like Top Gun and all that stuff and we went around the corner and it's like me with these other young filmmakers and the uh, established filmmakers were like Spike Lee the Hudlin Brothers Albert Brooks and I'm like and I'm on like leave from my corporate job I'm like yeah. what am I doing here and that's kind of how it really started and then I was writing jokes just to write material and comedy sketches and stuff and Jay Leno was the entertainment at a private function one night uh, that my firm was invited to and I was gonna I was working all nighters and I just took this material I had printed out printed it out and after he performed, it was like, it was one of these high-paying corporate gigs. I just handed him my jokes, and he goes, uh, I said, I don't know if you need jokes, but... And he was like, <laughs> okay, me, me, me. And, you, you know, he, and what blew me away was, like, he really, it, it seemed more pronounced than in, on TV the way he talked. It was almost like helium was escaping from a balloon or something. And then I walked away, and he's like, hey, come back here. You might want to put your name and your phone number on here so I know how to reach you. Like, I was so nervous right here. I am Mr. Like Corporate Law. And he called me the next day and he said, um, start sending jokes in for the Tonight Show monologue. And if I use it, I'll pay you 50 bucks a joke. And he goes, he made fun of me. He goes, what do you do? I go, I'm a lawyer. He goes, I knew it. He started laughing at me. I go, why? He goes, you write like a lawyer. You're too wordy. He goes, just, just get me to the punchline. I can, I can take care of the rest. And then four days later, he called me and he did my first joke on the Tonight Show. He paid me 50 bucks for the joke. And, uh, it was just like just blew me away it like totally do you remember the joke yeah it was about um it was about this old house how it doesn't reflect real life at all um you know in in on this old house the contractor is always like super buttoned up and neat on budget under time like just amazing in real life you know he's drunk hitting on your wife going through your sock drawer for money that kind of thing just like a whole rant of stuff and you know that he wanted a certain kind of joke that would play to all of America, and it was clean, and it and it and it got a big laugh, and I was like, oh my god! And then I became obsessed with writing jokes, and I started to bring two notebooks to deal meetings, and one was for the notes for the deal, and one was for the jokes, and I wasn't taking any deal notes, and I was responsible, like I was supposed to keep the minutes of the meeting, and I had no idea to go back to the to my office and be like, I have no idea what just happened, but I have all these good joke ideas, and then I kept sending him stuff and then he encouraged me to go out and do the jokes before I send them to him so I started to go to open mic nights like bar rooms is this all in New York? in New York and I would sneak out of work and now I started to live this like secret double life and I would sneak out of work and I'd go everyone else at 7 o'clock you get a dinner break because we were working all nighters all the time um, I would get in a car or a cab and I'd go downtown to the Bowery to like the worst places in the world like places like I may have mentioned this. I don't know. One was called Downtown Beirut. Two was the actual name of the club bar, and it was the best way to describe it is like when people on the streets ask you for money to go drinking. This is where they go to drink with mm -hmm. the money you gave them, and it was literally like a pimp and a hooker worked out of there. They dealt drugs out of there. It's a sign on the men's room door that said the toilet seats only to be used to go to the bathroom, not to cut coke. Thank you, the management. And it actually said thank you, the management. <laughs> And I would go in my little Wall Street outfit, try to look downtown. Like I'd take my jacket off, leave it in the car, take my tie off, mess up my hair, and I'd wait to do five minutes, sometimes three or four hours, and then I'd do it, and I'd run back. 
dressed back up. Nobody knew I was gone. Sometimes they did, and I got in trouble because I was supposed to be gone in an hour, and they couldn't find me. And that kind of became the cycle. And, That's Clark um, Kent. You're just a comedy man. Super comedy man? I'm sure this joke's been made before. <laughs> it's like, it was a, like a dysfunctional Superman thing. One night a guy, there was a knife fight at the pool table, and a guy got cut on the side of the neck, and he started bleeding really badly. But not juggler, but like he was bleeding a lot, but he was drunk, and he knew the guy that was like over a drug deal. And there was a <laughs> folk singer on stage, this is all true, playing Blowing in the Wind badly, like, yeah, my friend. So this guy's now screaming, like, I know where he lives. I'm going to get that son of a bitch. And his girlfriend is, like, freaking out, like, oh, my God, look at my boyfriend. He's like, oh, my God, I'm going to get him. I know where he lives. Oh, my God. And the answer, my friend, the guy just, like, keeps playing because he's, he's been waiting months to get on. Right, stage. right. So I get up to make my way to the door, and uh, I hear the MC go up. My back is to the chase, and I hear, all right, you guys ready for some comedy? <laughs> and I'm up next. And I'm not doing it long enough to know, like, I don't have to go up. I think I have to go up. And uh, I go on stage and I say, it's nice to be here. I always wanted to follow a slashing, which I thought was a pretty good line. But the guy who got his neck cut didn't think so. And he had all these bloody cocktail napkins and he wads them up and he starts running toward the stage. He goes, hey, I'm gonna, you're making fun of me. I don't need to take any shit from you. And he threw all these napkins at me and they hit me in my white like Brooks Brothers shirt and they left a giant blood stain on my shirt do you have that framed on your wall <laughs> I have that should be in the Hard Rock Cafe it. of Comedy yeah exactly this is it this is how it's gonna this is how it started and this is how it's gonna end yep and uh, and then I went back to the firm and I tried to hide it I was like a 12 year old like walking around with a file <laughs> folder and the minute I walked into the conference room the senior partner is like like when your dad gets mad at you he's like so crazed he can't and he goes, where have you been? What have you been doing? Why do you have a blood stain on your shirt? Like, within seconds. And I was just, you know, baked. And, like, I, that became sort of trying to avoid. I had to, had to hide behind the bar one time because the senior partner's wife and her girlfriends came to a restaurant. And they were doing comedy in the back. And then they wanted to go see the comedy. So I kind of hid behind the bar. And then I ran on stage under a different name. And I did, like, half my time. And I ran. Like, so I was having a nervous breakdown trying to hide all of this stuff and then eventually it was like um my father died i was gonna and then i went home to help run the family furniture business in rhode island i thought that's what i was supposed to do because i was really lost like should i i couldn't figure out if i should do stand-up or if i should do um if i should do stay in the law where there's security and it was a really scary decision and i didn't have the balls to make it and then i was like then my father died i'm like oh god's making this decision for me because i gotta go home and help my mom with the family business and i'll take that over and that didn't work out because my mother's really controlling so she wouldn't give up any authority and so we butted head for six months and i was like i can't do this and then i went back and had not far from where we're sitting in central park i had a two-bedroom co-op that i owned and i sold that and sold my suits and everything and moved to a, a rooming house just outside the city with um it's like you know those like um humphrey bogart like philip marlowe movies he's like goes to the rooming house where the bad guy lives and it's this really run down decrepit that's what this was like like a red light flashing yeah it was like owned by only without the sign but it was owned by this old german couple and there were you had a 10 by 12 room with a hot pot and you shared a kitchen and a bathroom with all these other people and the other people in the house were two ex-cons two recovering addicts and right above me was a 300 pound phone sex operator who sold Herbalife diet products door to door (laughs) these were my neighbors and then I started to live the life of a comic and that's kind of how it started and then I got really 
Then I got audited by the IRS because they thought I was hiding money. Then I got really disenchanted because I was like, oh, this sucks. I'm getting stiffed on money. I'm poor. And, um, and it's all beautiful uh, stuff to draw on for a yeah, comedy. Yeah. So then it, and then sort of as I was sort of working that out, I, I left comedy for a little bit, went back to Wall Street for a little bit, and left again for good. And then the Daily Show happened because Liz Winstead, who created the show, had seen me in the city. You know, I tend to talk some social, political stuff, and we hit it off. And she asked me to, you know, come on and do some writing. And, and it just had, and then the show took off, which was surreal. Like, and we didn't know what was going to happen with it. And that's kind of how it came about. So, like, from being sort of in the sort of scene here in the city, you know, it's a lot of it's right, anything, you know, right place, right time. Sure. Especially in L.A. when it comes to TV and film, that's where most of it gets done and people get discovered or whatever. So, so it's pretty, it's pretty un, uh, unpredictable. Sometimes people say to me, well, did you just wake up one day and say, no, I'm going to walk? I'm like, no, it was like a slow, like, peck, 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 like, it just, and then, it's kind of cliche, but I thought I picked it, but it kind of picked me, I guess it was, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, I was, but I didn't see it coming, I mean, I was kind of funny with my friends, but I was like, and I would love to watch, I don't know about you, did, but did you like to watch comedy at night, like on late night shows and stuff, the oh, stand-up? Of course, I mean, as a kid, yeah, that was, that was the, the appeal, you know, especially as a young kid, would you hearing in the other room, like, the adults get to watch yeah. whatever's happening on late night TV yeah. it's, that was the allure yeah and by the way thank you for not mentioning my really freaky right eye with the blood thing I didn't, I didn't even notice it <laughs> I I I was rubbing my eye so much uh, I burst a blood vessel in it and I looked like I just got in a bar fight or something but anyway no I didn't I barely noticed <laughs> and it's not as bad as two nights ago um, or days ago I walked up a long flight of stairs to the subway station my car didn't work and me hopping the turnstile because oh. I think I was 20 years old in the 1990s hip hop group. And uh, <laughs> this is the worst part of it was there was this lady there just kind of eating. I don't know why she was standing on this platform just eating like a cup of noodles or something. And I don't know, 40 year old white dude. I, wa I, I, I whispered to her, you're not going to tell anyone if I jump over the turnstile, right? <laughs> why would I even say that? And she looked at me like, why are you telling me this? Are you a narc? I don't understand. And so now I'm hovering over, trying to get myself over, and then I fall. I think I put my foot on the actual turnstile thing. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I fall as people are walking up the stairs. And it was if there's, like, security cam footage of it, it's the funny thing. But I fell on the same side, so I still had to jump over again. It was a mess. The, you know, you drew more attention to yourself by asking her than not, like, this is stuff that people do now. Like that emergency door exit, which is yeah. in everything, big red thing across. The, everybody goes through it whenever they want. Mm -hmm. Not just like it doesn't ring. I don't even know why it exists. Right. Like it's this big wide door that just people walk through because they don't want to wait three seconds to go through the turnstile. You did the right thing. I like the part that you landed back on the same side you started. I landed <laughs> and there's people walking up and I'm like, ah, it's not as bad as it looks like. No, that's not what I said. It was more embarrassing. It was like, it was like, oh, more embarrassed than hurt, more embarrassed than hurt. And then I was like, no, but actually I'm in pain and my knee has been fucked up since. Did you have, so what has been, it's been like nine years since you've been back. So yeah. what, what's very different for you from the last time that you were here? Um, 
Sorry, I'm interviewing you now. But no, I mean, this is this is your city, and I, I, I think the two main things would be, and I'm saying in Williamsburg, which mm. was already dripping with hipsterdom mm. when I was here in 2010, but walking down Bedford, which was up and coming then, and yeah. it's like where every fourth place was like the the coolest storefront ever. Now it's every place, <laughs> right? Um, and that's expanded. So hanging out in Brooklyn's been cool, just because it's yeah. Um, there's just something to look at everywhere but then of course you know i came here it was my last stand as a stand-up where i came here i was like i'm gonna get up every night um i was doing stand-up at the time or oh, what i, I thought was stand-up at the time yeah oh and my goal was to come here for a month and just dive in yeah. see if this is what i want to do and ultimately i decided it was not yeah and you know it was a year before i was at the improv so uh, i had you know booked a small theater in, in santa monica but of course, now my per perspective, having been at the Improv for six years, and to be back in New York and going to all the clubs, it's like, you know, I have a much uh, stronger foundation in comedy and stand-up and understanding the world. Yeah, which has made it even more fun. You know, a few I knew a few people then, but now it's just like the fun of you know going to the stand and going to the New York Comedy Club and um, and just knowing I'm going to see people I know everywhere. Yeah, it's sort of like you're not really working; you're kind of just hanging out with a bunch of your friends yeah. at a place that does what you do. Did you? Did you, uh, were you, did you start in L.A. doing stand-up and then came here? I started actually in the Bay Area. Oh, okay. Um, in 2002. Um, spent four years there doing that. Yeah. But not really stand-up. It was more like just multimedia, art, comedy, yeah. sketch shows. Yeah. And then 2006, I was in, in L.A. And my first job, or second job, um, was this brand new theater was opening up in Santa Monica called the West Side Comedy Theater. And so my job was now to just, was the first employee, build up I this. I love that theater. I didn't know you, you booked that theater at one time? I was for the first three, four years. That wow, I didn't know that. That's a great space. It, I mean, it's come a long way. The first three or four years was, um, and we, I think we talked about it earlier, just like that organic growth. You don't know where it's going to start, but yeah. you just dive in and, and it's in a tricky location. It's literally like down a side street slash alley, so it's not like there's a lot of foot traffic right in front of it. No, not at all. And in those early days, you know, it started it was just going to be improv, and then that's where I, for the first time, started seeing stand-up shows on the regular. And yeah. It was before there was a bar. Like A couple of years after I left, um, you know, we helped bring in this crew called the uh, Mission Improbable. But they got the liquor license and, and the beer and wine, and I think Neil Brennan started his show there on Sundays and that really started bringing in mm -hmm. um, but yeah it's one of the I think the best certainly the best uh, comedy establishment on the west side of LA yeah no that's cool so then you did that for three years and then went over to the improv and then had my year and a half of what the fuck am I doing <laughs> and that included the trip to New York <laughs> was funny and I, I must have said this on a previous podcast on this trip but I came here on my first night I went and got like a nice little meal in Brooklyn and it was cash only so I went to the ATM machine and took out 60 bucks or something and it was like you have $40 left in your account. This was the first night of a four week trip <laughs> to New York, the most expensive place in the world and um, the whole trip I was waiting on this check for a freelance gig I had which of course I got like my last day. Uh. So I think I'm still paying off that credit card. <laughs> but if you told me then are you going to be back you know, seven years later? You will have booked the Hollywood Improv yeah. and done all these things. But also, you're going to be broke again? <laughs> I would you have know, left. You were on my podcast, and we talked a lot about like the what you do as a booker. I get a lot of great 
feedback on that from people who, which is exactly what I wanted. It was not so obviously feedback from people in the business who are comics, but I'm more interested in like people who don't really know that side of it. Just know like they look fans of stand up, but they don't know how it works and how intricate and complicated it can be and this and that and the other thing. And they, they, they were really blown away with what you do and they thought it was really cool. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to do another one. I tried to get you when I was out there, but you were too busy. But um, well, that, I'm, yeah, I'm going to be coming out again, so we'll grab you and do a catch-up kind of thing. But um, Well, you know I'm not there anymore. No. How do I not know that? I don't know. When did you leave? Uh, two months ago. Oh, yeah, there you go. Mid-February. Oh, where, what are you doing? You just hanging? I don't know. That's why I'm broke. Um, and as I'm sure I talked about on your podcast, like you know, it was it's the most intense job and yeah, so I, much pressure. And yeah, it's like you nobody's ever happy. You can't satisfy everybody. No, you're pulled in a million directions. Every time I see you at the club, you look exhausted. Well, especially the last year, and since I've known you, it was like the last couple of years the lab reopened, and yeah. And was, when I would come to town, I kind of my rule is like people that I'd like to see. Especially people like yourself with intense jobs. I reach out a couple of times if they can do it. If they can't, I understand. So it always worked out that we at least get to say hi to each other. But yeah, I did notice you got more and more busy as things went on. And yeah, it was especially I mean, that last over year. The last year, but because there's that's two great, rooms. Though. You but went yeah. to your own venue. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I, just, I mean, I want to write and produce yeah. and, and kind of do everything. And so, of course, it, it, it's, it was a leap of faith. You know, it's like leaving your job on Wall Street. Yeah. Like it's it's I was at this, you know, bedrock institution. Yeah. Who I have so much love for. But um ultimately you gotta follow your your heart. Yeah, I mean you can get stuck in those jobs, I think. I see some people doing it for a long time and they get they get into a routine and they get also super jaded and they never feel appreciated. But if you're doing your own thing, that was I think to tie it back to what what I did for a minute, like uh we had a bunch of middle school baseball kids looking at us <laughs> on the, uh, the <laughs> uh, I think what clicked for me was when Leno did that first joke of mine well let me back up when you're like a lawyer or a banker you're a, like a consultant essentially you're whispering in the ear of somebody whose deal it is but it's not your deal so you're invested in it but in a different way which is that you want to do a good job and you want to get a promotion hopefully from your bosses and a bonus and all of that but it's not your plant it's like you're watering somebody else's plant and then Leno does that joke it's like I created something out of thin air and people reacted to it and you can't affix a dollar amount to that moment and I I assume for you maybe there's some spark of like I could I want to do this but have it be my own thing with my moniker on it and there's a that's a big, ballsy move, but I mean, I totally relate to it, you know. Well, you you you've seen comedy change and evolve so much in the last twenty years. And, yeah. And you know, the, the improv, especially the Hollywood improv, will always be that. And you know, I'm certainly proud of you know mm. what I brought to it. But yeah, it was it's watering someone else's lawn. Yeah. Or flower, or whatever you're watering. And um, yeah, I want to be part of what what's next and. And ultimately, it being such an industry club, there, there's just so many added pressures. Yeah. And yeah, I want to I want to be creating as much as possible. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of 
have you might have a space that does not just stand up but experimental stuff and improv and yeah if it's if it's the space that it's looking like it would be it's a theater um you know a 200 seat theater so 200 yeah the dynamic completely changes from a club yeah which i love the club you know um cabaret aesthetic aesthetic as, as well but um yeah, comedy of course will be the core of it, but it, it's it's more variety than anything else in, That's in awesome. music. And but regardless of that, you know, I just w- it's, I want to be creating. I love the energy of, of talking to people. Yeah. Um, and you must get your juices flowing coming here. People always say that. It's hard for me to relate to that experience because I'm I live here, but I can understand it. I think because there's so much around. I needed this trip more than I even knew. Like, really. Having been here, this is the eighth or ninth day. Like. And I was telling someone earlier, like in L.A., and part of it, it's maybe laziness, but I feel like if I have a two o'clock meeting, my day is shot because it's going to take an hour to get there, an hour to get back, and then it's right in the middle of the day, and maybe I can do one or two things. In New York, like, you're already, well, you're the second stop in like a day of five other right. things I'm going to do. Right. Because you're just popping around town. Yeah. But the energy of the city, the energy of just talking to, to it people. Got, it's gotten you more, uh, I don't want to say motivated, but just more energized to go back and do what you need to do and kind of totally see the opportunities and stuff absolutely and i mean the biggest lesson i've been learning is just um you know because i know people in la too but um the idea of comfort zones and my comfort zone has been for the last few years basically i mean at at its core being in front of my computer in my apartment but really i live three blocks from the improv right so that square half miles where I, i i live yeah and just this, you know, reminder like I, you have to get out of your comfort zone. But uh, coming here and just talking to, basically just talking to people, being inspired by yeah. people that are creating things is so key to I think most people's energy levels. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that's going back to the Late Show and then the Daily Show before that. It's like to see that show get created every day, even though there is a routine to it and a regimen. It's pretty crazy, and then to see how people react, not to sound hokey, but like to see the satisfaction that people get out of it in the moment, whether it's me talking to them or performing on the show or watching them as they're watching. Sometimes I'll watch the audience watch the band after I get off and the band is playing. Um, It's pretty cool, like it's, uh, so there is like that thing which makes all of these those hard decisions, I think, right, you know, like, um, you know, my mother didn't really quite understand, I didn't expect her to, you know, high school educated, and it's like, I may, you know, you want, I think you want your son to be a lawyer or a doctor, you know, that kind of thing. But then through, like, other people's eyes, she started to appreciate it more, like, she has a store, and, like, if there was an article done on me, she'd put it up, and it was my one article said something about, I was on the Daily Show set, and customer came, and was like, oh, who's that? And, uh, you know that guy? Yeah, my wife's like, uh, my, my, my mother's like, yeah, th- yeah, that's my son, he works on the Daily Show. Oh, I love that show. My mother doesn't really like to watch TV, she's a big book person, and so, like, and then when I went home with the Emmy, like, the first Emmy for the Daily Show, and I took a picture of it with her, she kind of started to go, because she understood what an Emmy was, uh, not sure, but like she kind of, oh, okay, well, I mean, maybe this isn't so frivolous after all. I don't, you know, so it's like that idea of your own thing and that creation and then seeing people react to your creation is a, is a real 
you can relate to it. It's hard to some people to relate to it, but that's, I mean, I guess that's the drive for everything. But I, th- I, I connected to you talking about just watching people react to the band, you know. And I, I love performing, and of yeah. course, there's nothing that quite comes close to being on a stage and yeah. when things are going well. Um, but some of my most joyous moments at the improv or just in producing shows in general is seeing people react to the, the band you booked and um, yeah. you know knowing I'm sure at the Daily Show having putting together all the pieces and then it's a cohesive thing that people enjoy yeah I mean and you you were doing it so beautifully and expertly over at the improv because you had a couple of stages you were running and then you're doing the podcast room upstairs and then you've got so many demands on you like that was the thing to me that always seemed that is not like it's not like that here in New York I mean there's just not that level of industry that's coming to the rooms and stuff like that it's just it's different you know? well I look at um, you know SD at, at the cellar yeah. and um, really just the comedy club culture in general the improv is kind of an aberration um, in that you know SD I used always use the cellar as, as the kind of like the as far as curation goes like every night she books a lineup mm. and gets to pick who she wants and I'm, sh- I'm there's of course politics everywhere mm. um, but to have the freedom to just book a lineup of just people that you want and that and creating the system by which people get stage time and you know if you're not passed it doesn't matter and if, if someone from one of the big agencies calls like maybe you want to help them but it's not built into no not at all it's like it's it's you know it's i think you know she has her favorites um a lot of us that's good but then if you're not it's still not bad because she'll get you on and but you have to especially that room you have to really kill like that's really what they care about the most like you gotta well that's something for this podcast too when i started it to to reach young comics to give advice and um you know, to, to give them perspective from the other side, yeah. and um, and how to approach their career and how to ta- think of you know the bookers and, and producers. Yeah. Um, so having to kill, I, th- I think uh, that's an important thing that especially for young comics to remember. And whether it's at the cellar or the, but when you get that shot, you have to kill. Right. I don't know how if that's as instilled in LA, or if you're maybe if you're coming up from more the independent world um, where there is a more of a casualness and you're playing to comedy fans more than yeah regular audience but yeah th- that pressure of you're not working out material when you go up there like you go up to kill yeah no I mean especially on the weekends but you have to also have places where what I call safe spaces where you can fail and uh, I mean I do anyway and I'll I'll still throw in a thing here or there at the cellar but at the cellar a little bit more so most people will tell you they're a little bit more on their toes of like getting the job done um, so and I know what you mean about like uh, I hate this like, alternative whatever sure. I don't know what, what but those those kind of rooms which I also play there yeah, maybe there's a little more leeway to kind of not have to go for the punchline every 30 seconds or whatever but all those people were trying to work the cellar and vice versa I don't maybe I don't know about vice versa but you know I think that uh, it's it's all kind of mixed in now I, I think there's less separation and I think that's good I never was a big fan of you're this kind of person that sure 
it was the whole reason I got into comedy was because I one of the big reasons was I don't like that I, I don't like cliques I don't like I think everybody should embrace everybody and artists should welcome and be on the same stage with artists that are different than they are although that's how you truly grow so like to just have a bunch of six people that are all doing the same genre of comedy feels comfortable because it's a safe space because we all are the same kind of people and we mm -hmm. all wear the same similar clothes and we all live in the same neighborhood I think you know it's not good for comedy I think clubs should have a mix and rooms that quote unquote aren't clubs more other kind of venues should have a mix and I think it's gotten better um, I try to work both and make sure I do because it's good but like if you're if you're at the cellar like they get feedback like they'll they'll reach out to they'll like they'll get emails addresses because that's how people put their uh, make their uh, reservations and then they'll write to them and say what did you think of the show mm -hmm. what did you like on the show and they go right to the he's like known the owners like he's running a business you know yeah and um, so ironically I think that while that place may you know Louie works out of there and and uh, Chris Rock and Kevin Hart lately sort of seems like the artist space in a way it is and in a way it isn't like you can you've got a little bit of leeway to well yeah I, and some of the, the, those massive names it is more of a workout room for them yeah and they can try new stuff yeah and that's if you work there long enough like there's there's some of us like I feel comfortable enough now where you're like I know I can have a couple of minutes here and there where I'm eating it and they'll know what I'm doing mm -hmm. and it won't come back to bite you I don't think you can go a whole set and nobody really does like without getting a lot of laughs you just have to kind of play with it you know and 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 kind of you you kind of earn the right through time and credits or whatever um and she's and also like you know uh esty more so than anybody i think books very specifically like certain people are right for certain slots mm -hmm. Like certain person is right to open and close a show because they got good energy and they can really command the room. Somebody that may be a little quieter, it's got to go in the middle because they can't carry a show at the beginning and don't really open it. And she'll stick to that like regimen, like not just that she'll use uh, the same general grouping of us, but she'll slot us almost like mm -hmm. Because she, that's how, in her head, it works. I mean, you had your own way of booking stuff, you know? So it's like, um, and then there's, yeah. I, I don't know how you did it, because it's, that to me is, to having one, you know, all these people nipping at your heels. I, I don't either, but... um. Well, you have musical ability, too. I didn't know yeah, that. I can uh, so. play a few notes. Not yeah. really, but I mean, I love music, and I, I love messing around with it, but I love booking it, and I... I you know, when music and comedy are happening at the same time and it's going well, it just elevates everything. Yeah. You're like a renaissance man, that's for sure. Yeah. Who can't jump a turnstile for shit, but otherwise. <laughs> that's not part of my triple threat. <laughs> if you if you should you should talk about that in your act. That's really a funny bit. The fact that you told someone you're not going to... The woman's like, she probably saw four murders that day and didn't report them. And you're, yeah, That's like very sweet. Well, I, I'm scared to listen to it, but... Um, I did turn on my recorder on my phone just to, you know, in the aftermath of it, just to record <laughs> the details of it. Yeah. Um, well, this has been awesome. I mean, yeah, so man. what's, I, and I'm 
wrapping it up more so because you have to leave, but also because this battery is starting to flash. And um, got but, it. But um, what's next, Palma Cario? I'm right now in a movie called Chuck with Liev Schreiber, that just came out. It's about the Chuck Webner story, who is the real life Rocky Balboa. So I'm in that movie. Amazing. And I just went and saw myself on the screen with my wife and my kid, and I even took a picture of myself on the screen, which was. Uh, uh, wait, hang on. Let's, so, um, what are the wife and that's the, uh, that's the that's the that's uh, the poster for it. That's me with Liev at the Emmy Awards. Oh, cool! In the bathroom nine <laughs> months before I got the gig, I didn't even know I was ever going to be on it. And he was in the bathroom stall next to me, and I'm like, I'm a big fan. Do you mind taking a picture? He goes, Yeah, sure. And then randomly, you're, you're randomly, in I'm in the movie. And did you uh, show him that picture first day? I I showed him on the set, yeah. And somewhere in there is my name on the credits. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, and I'll show you this real quick. So yeah, it was pretty. Uh, it was pretty surreal. There you are. There I am, in my 1970s Guido clothes. It's all set in the 70s when he made his big splash as a boxer. So there's that, and um, I signed uh, I signed. Uh, a deal with Lionsgate for a show that I created that we're taking out, and we're congratulations. That's yeah, huge. I'm really excited. It's a political comedic talk show, a little different from what's out there right now, and sort of leverages off of my Daily Show background and ability to do that kind of stuff. And um, and so that's why I'm going to be coming to LA a little bit more because we're going to be out there working on that and getting that out there and then my podcast two chairs and a microphone which is on itunes which you've been on and you're going to come back on and uh just had colin quinn on this week so that's who's up and then last week two weeks ago with bobcat goldthwaite so really cool conversations with them about their comedy and bobcat especially like his trajectory of going from the screaming guy to and um i'm going to see if i can get this eye looked at taken care of it'll take care of itself (laughs) Um, and I, I mean, we don't have to go into the whole story, but, um, I, I think when I was on your podcast, yes. you told me the Paul McCartney story yeah. of getting Paul on your podcast. Yeah. And so I just want to direct listeners to this podcast. It's, it's a phenomenal story. And, and I've, to this day, I think one of my credits is to have been a guest on the podcast that Paul McCartney was also, I guess. Yeah, it was pretty <laughs> surreal. He, I met him at the Colbert Report. Long story short, I asked him to do my podcast. I thought he'd say no. He said yes. And I basically shit my pants and and he did it (laughs) and so yeah that's on there and um brian cranston judd apatow adam mckay neil degrasse tyson so it's a broad array of people i like to just people that i find interesting that i don't know anything about and i think people might find it which is why people liked your podcast so much when you came on so i love it and um it was also cool worth mentioning like when you were doing warm-up and you were so uh, humble about it but i of course noticed like the (laughs) palmacario.com behind you while you're doing warm-up right. yeah they they're like we should put that up for you we put it up for john batiste let's put your thing up so people know That's who cool. you are did you, you. do you feel do you um ever get people from an audience to, to your shows or yeah actually pretty regularly and it's, if i say something too it just happened the, the last i was in san francisco it happened at the punchline i was in minnesota yeah they'll come out yeah that's awesome uh, they'll either go to my site or i might mention i'm going to be in this town have a good time and they're like we came and we're like, and it, sometimes they think you like, oh, like I think they think you're gonna remember their face or something. Yeah, like they're really cool. Yeah, so it's been really great. It's awesome. Been, yeah, so the the late show's been a big thing, and I just did it again for the second time, 
and uh, I got another one coming up uh, probably in the fall. So I got, and I'm doing commentary for CBS Sunday Morning now. So you're doing everything. Yeah, I'm a I'm a juggernaut. You know, you're with a bad eye. <laughs> um, get out of your own head. Yeah, I, um, well, you're a Renaissance man yourself. No, you are. I'm yeah. excited to see this theater, man. I hope hope it catches catches fire and check it out. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's exciting just to be in a place of yeah. not knowing what's next and scary. But yeah. thanks, man. Dad, do well before we wrap up. Do you have any final advice for? Is there some perform nugget? as much as you can if you're a comic starting out everywhere and anywhere don't have an attitude don't develop and say i'm this kind of comic and not that kind of comic work every room for every kind of audience sophisticated and blue collar it'll only make you stronger and if you're going to go to audition at one of the big clubs in the city if you think you're ready wait six months and then go because if you go too early the first impressions are the most lasting you'll just add two years to your process better to be over prepared and crush it and instantly get work, then be ill-prepared, and then you've just set yourself in stone for a while. So wait, 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 and don't be a snob about comedy. I think that's fantastic advice. Yeah. Uh, work on your craft endlessly, be a professional, be undeniable, and be cool as fuck always. Yeah. From Central Park in New York City, this has been uh, another awesome conversation. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, thanks, man. It's great to see you, you again. You too. All right, press and stop. For more episodes of Gatekeeper, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find me online at jamieflam.com, at jamieflam on Twitter, at gatekeeperpod on Twitter, and Flammy Davis Jr. on Instagram. This episode was produced by Andrew Steven, and a very special thanks to Buddy Peace for the music at the top and end of this and all episodes. Hello, this is Jamie Flam, and if you can hear the sirens in the background, it is the sounds of New York City, where I'm, um, this is just a quick story that I had to share because it's uh, ridiculous. I just got off the train in New York City at Union Street, uh, or Union uh, Square, I should say, which is a, it's a big square area in New York City. And to get here, I took the 6th train. To get to the 6th train, I had to get on the J train in Brooklyn. And so I go to the Marcy Street station in Brooklyn to get on the J train. And I walk up a long flight of stairs. And, oh, people are honking at me. How New York of you, assholes. Just kidding. I mean, I'm not kidding. But you know, there was an authentic moment you saw. They didn't honk at me. There's no reason to honk. Anyway. Um, I climbed this long flight of stairs to get to the station and there's just a couple of turnstiles. There's no way to add money to my ticket, which incidentally I needed to do because I didn't have enough money. So I tried swiping my card through three, four or five times and it's not working. And my only other option is to go back down the stairs, walk another, I don't know, half a block. Uh, ultimately, not that long for what happened. Uh, but, you know, I wanted to get to my destination, and I'm lazy. And there's a, just this girl, probably in her mid-20s, just eating like a cup of noodles for some reason right there next to those turnstiles, and she's looking at me. And I make the decision. Like a hip-hop rapper, you know, hip-hop rappers uh, from the 90s, 
I'm going to jump over the turnstiles. Fuck the system. Fuck the man. I don't need to pay to travel across this city and across this river. Um, and so <laughs> I'm the only person probably in the history of jumping a turnstile at first. Walked over to the girl eating from her cup of noodles and said, will you tell anyone if I jump the turnstile? And she just laughed because, yeah, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world to ask someone uh, if they're going to tell on me. I'm a 40-year-old man. <laughs> I'm just realizing how ridiculous that is. Um, so she just kind of laughs and shakes her head. Um, and so now I have to navigate how I'm going to get over this turnstile. There's two options. One, to jump over. One, to go under. Limbo style. And I was never one for limboing. And it looked a little bit scrunched. So I'm like, I'll just hop this thing. I'm getting older, but I can still hop, hop a thing. It's not a huge fence. It's just a turnstile. So I pull myself over. And as I'm up on top of it, like taking so long. It should just be a quick boop, boop. But I'm like waiting up there, kind of waiting like my legs. And I'm like, okay, I got this, but it was a little bit awkward. And then boom, I fall through halfway, hurting the fuck out of my knee. <laughs> it hurt really bad. And so now, and I land on the side I shouldn't be on. I'm back on the side where I started. At least if I had hurt my knee and went on the other side, it would have been on the other side. But now so I'm back where I started. The girl sitting in her cup of noodle soup is laughing uncontrollably. And then there's two girls coming up and a dude. I'm sorry. I'm not going to say. Um, and that was an awkward moment where someone was just wow. asking for money and I didn't give them money. Yeah, another authentic moment. I promise sometimes I give money to people in the streets. Just not in that moment. It would have been cool. I could have given him a buck. Maybe I'll go back. That would have been cool. It would have been inauthentic had I given him a buck. Ah, this is also confusing. Anyway, there's two two girls and a, a dude walking up the stairs right as this thing happens, and I'm, I have my legs in the turnstile, and I'm like, do what I'm pretty good at doing at this point. When somebody embarrassing happens, like it's all good. More embarrassed than in pain. Uh, followed by, but I'm actually in a lot of pain because my fucking knee hurt. As if I had just gotten careened into by a top player by Smash Williams and the hit show Friday Night Lights, which you recently might have heard of me talking about, watched every episode of. Uh, and so then I had to do it again. I had to do it again and I jumped over. Now I have four witnesses. And I made it over this time okay. But it's just so embarrassing that the dude walking up was just like, he's so nice. He was just trying to be like, oh, I'm sorry, man. I don't know. He's, I think he was embarrassed, obviously, for me. And he saw that. And was, but he, I, thought, I thought he took a very uh, cool approach to, to being nice about it, and, which I appreciated. Um, and there you have it. Then I had to stand there. And now my fucking knee hurts and I can barely walk. Across the city of New York. New York. Anyway, uh, I think that was a decent enough story. There was a beginning, a middle, and an end. There was a high point when I was on top of the 
turnstile and a low point, and I landed back on the same side and I had a hurt, hurt knee. But uh, everything has worked out fine. I'm close to where I'm going, and uh, you know.